This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. The invasion of Ukraine is a crisis some are already calling a turning point in world history, and how we react is shaped by the coverage we get, most of which comes from countries which have already taken sides, but not everyone everywhere is seeing the same stuff. How do you feel about uh, the special operation in Ukraine and what he was there to do? Do we support it? Yes. Most of the information people get here is from state TV, which portrays the conflict in Ukraine as a fight against fascism. This week on Media Watch, we take a long look at how the war is being covered with two experts in international journalism and conflict. But first, how have our own media responded to our country's cautious contribution to the war so far? Now, the saying it's better late than never doesn't always apply to politics. Many times, being late to the party on an important, urgent issue is a death knell. You miss the moment and you've lost it forever. But I don't think that applies to the Labour government's delayed response to helping Ukraine with lethal weapons. That was Today FM host Lloyd Burr last month backing our government's wait-and-see approach to helping Ukraine repel the Russian forces, which began their invasion two months ago. Now He's a political reporter by trade, but like many others in the media lately, he hasn't been shy of airing his views on what ordnance, artillery and other military assets the defenders of Ukraine could use from us. It's easy to criticise the government on this, and I've done my fair share of that, mainly regarding the failure to send over our Javelin anti-tank missile launchers and missiles. But yesterday, they announced New Zealand would go further than humanitarian aid and give $7.5 bucks for Ukraine to buy weapons from the United Kingdom. The Defence Force said that this was what Ukraine wanted. And that was in addition to an Air Force Hercules, 50 aircrew and other military intelligence personnel already on their way to Europe. Alongside humanitarian measures, Lloyd Burr reckoned all this measured up. We are making a contribution with an aircraft, with personnel, equipment, humanitarian aid, money for lethal weapons to prevent Putin's invasion, sanctions and a pathway for relatives of Ukrainian Kiwis to come here. I think that's pretty comprehensive so far and I'm sure it won't stop there. But better late than never. But that wasn't how another on-air armchair armaments expert saw it. Generally, the world has piled in with weaponry, except, of course, for us. We've had blankets, old tat from the second-hand cupboard, nine, count them, nine personnel from the military and a lot of window dressing in the form of sanctions, which, although the right thing to do, don't actually count for anything because, one, Russians aren't here and they were never coming, and two, our trade was never up to much anyway. We've been dangerously slow. We've been embarrassingly resistant to weapons. Mike Hosking on News Talk ZB there, though if he was in charge of our response to Ukraine's war, it might not have been a rapid response. Days before Russia invaded, he was telling his listeners this. I still don't think there's going to be a war in the Ukraine. There's going to be there's a couple of skirmishes on the border and some of the pro-Russian aspects of the Ukraine and there's this stirring going on, but I think fundamentally someone's going to step back. But they didn't. Two weekends ago, the stuffed papers around the nation carried an editorial rating the government's response so far as well judged. Those who have argued that this marks the end of New Zealand's independent foreign policy have got it wrong, said the unnamed editorial writer. We have not turned into hawks overnight, they added, and the morality of assisting Ukraine defence is clear, said the editorial. But conversely, in the Herald, political pundit and lobbyist Matthew Hooten reckoned that the government wasn't moral, just pragmatically lining up with our Five Eyes partners. We've chosen Washington, London and Canberra, he said, not Moscow and Beijing. Politics lecturer and commentator Bryce Edwards proclaimed that our independent foreign policy is virtually dead now. For the first time since the 1930s, he said this country has sent troops to a European war. Though that wasn't quite right. A fair few took part in World War II in places like 
Italy, for example. Now, Bryce Edwards also identified what he called a growing hawkish atmosphere here, evident in the number of yellow and blue flags flying, and in his words, the revulsion caused by the atrocities shown nightly on the TV news. Though you can show solidarity or sympathy with a flag, rather than aggression, likewise watching TV news coverage. But while the opinions of pundits here half a world away are of little consequence, that news coverage certainly does have an impact, but sometimes in unexpected ways. On News Talk ZB recently, TVNZ's US correspondent Anna Burns Francis, back home on a break, told News Talk ZB's weekend collective show the celebrification of Ukraine's president had had an odd political outcome in the US. America sort of has this funny perception of Russia because Trump was always going on about how Putin was his best mate and they were all uh, cosy together. And he's a genius. <laughs> yeah, and and in some way we um, probably that was a lot truer than any of us have been able to dig out any information on. But at the same time, it was really funny watching the Republican Party in particular swing really hard, almost a complete U-turn. At the beginning, they were sort of saying, you know, Biden's going to screw this up, he's going to get us involved in a war, you know, we shouldn't be getting involved. And all of a sudden, they watched Zelensky, Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, become this overnight sensation, cut through directly with his message to people on TikTok and on Instagram and doing these social media posts. And the Republican Party did this massive swing to try and shore up voters because we've got midterms and elections coming up where all of a sudden, oh, Putin actually is the bad guy. We should be helping Ukraine here. We don't want to get in a war, but, yep, we'll uh, we'll support Ukraine. Everyone turning up to Congress to watch his speech. Mm. So it has been very interesting to watch, you know, of course, America, turning it into a political spectacle mm. and a PR campaign as to how you can convince yeah. more people to support your position. But while the visceral images and media reports now have everyone's attention, it won't always be that way, Anna Burns Francis reckoned. And the problem is that it will become a long, bloody battle, almost like a siege. And that will be the problem is where do we go when the Mm. world diverts its attention and isn't so interested? The further that conflict moves back towards Russia to those other regions that we've seen separatist groups rising up in, the less interest there'll be because the threat subsides to the West. And Mm. I am such a cynic, but Mm. that's what I think will happen. And as ever here in New Zealand, it's Anglo-American headquartered outlets that are feeding our media the accounts of the conflict. The BBC, CNN, ITV and in print and online, the likes of The Telegraph, The Times, The Economist, Washington Post and so on. Now plenty depends upon the appetite of those news organisations to stick with the story in Ukraine and in Russia into the future. But sometimes the story they tell us isn't really aimed at us. For example, this report aired on TBNZ1 News the weekend before last. Two days ago, his family received a phone call as he explained they were having to surrender. To lay down our arms and uh, head towards the Russian soldiers. They wouldn't have surrendered if they'd still got ammunition. The next time his grandmother and other family members saw him, it was Aidan in handcuffs, now a captive, being paraded on Russian television. That story of a British citizen fighting in Ukraine captured by the Russians was compelling, but we were only seeing that on TVNZ1 because the BBC also reports for Britons. Now, the news we get from Ukraine could play a big role in our support for the country's fight, which may go deeper than it has so far. So does it matter if the news we get comes from countries that have taken Ukraine's side? And with international journalists kicked out or frozen out by Russia, and the news media there subject to heavy controls by Putin's regime, which also pumps out propaganda on the channels the Kremlin backs, how can we get any reliable sense of what the Russians really think and might do next? 
These are questions I discussed with James Rogers, a former correspondent in Moscow and the author of the book Assignment Moscow, reporting on Russia from Lenin to Putin. He's also a reader in international journalism at City University in London these days, where a New Zealander, Melanie Bunce, is now the head of the journalism department and its professor of international journalism. I don't think the Ukrainian crisis is quite as complicated as an election campaign or a political issue where there's lots of different sides you really need to hear out. You know, the international community, there's a lot of consensus about what's happening right now and condemnation of unilateral invasion of Ukraine. I mean, the the United Nations voted 141 to 5 to condemn it. So I think, you know, I don't think we really need to worry about the idea of sides too much in this situation. Russia is increasingly isolated and the narratives coming from there don't bear too much scrutiny. Uh, Having said that, I think we do want to think a little bit about who the news is being made for and wonder about whether it's best suited to a New Zealand audience. I'm always a bit sad you know that we don't have as much original foreign reporting coming from New Zealand and I perfectly understand why of course it's extremely expensive you know to to have a foreign correspondent abroad Um, but it is sad not to see it occasionally you know a bit more reporting on well how is it affecting Ukrainian and Russian communities in New Zealand what should New Zealand's government role be these are the kind of questions you might prompt more if you're doing your own international reporting the organisations that do have the resources to do the reporting, they are primarily catering still for a real Western audience. And so some of the news coverage we're seeing is quite ethnocentric in that regard. You know, really um, some of these comments early on in the coverage that were criticised, rightly so, talking about how Ukraine was was so surprising that there was crisis there because it's so civilised and European. But this isn't a place, with all due respect, um you know, like Iraq or Afghanistan that has seen conflict raging for decades. You know, this is a relatively civilized, uh, relatively European. I have to choose those words carefully, too. Now the unthinkable has happened to them. And this is not a developing third world nation. This is Europe. What is that saying about where other crises happen and and that kind of um, Western bias running through the coverage? In the bigger picture, there's another point here, too, because if we think about the extent to which media has become a weapon in this war, if we think to the extent to which the Russian government has, in effect, successfully in the 21st century, been able to impose 20th century style media controls, you know, it's very, very hard to get access to international media in Russia. How do you feel about uh the special operation in Ukraine and what he was there to do. Do we support it? Yes. Most of the information people get here is from state TV, which portrays the conflict in Ukraine as a fight against fascism. There's a couple of things to say here. Whatever one thinks of, for example, RT or Russia Today, as it used to be known, or Sputnik or any of those Kremlin-funded propaganda channels, in effect, It is useful for us in the West to be able to see them simply to understand how this has all been perceived within Russia itself. And it's harder and harder for us to do. I mean, I personally was against um, the banning of RT in the West for a number of reasons. Firstly, because I don't think it's actually that influential. I don't think it really has a big effect on public opinion. And however distasteful people may find some of the reporting that it was doing, um, I think it is important for us to know here you know, what audiences in Russia are being told. The world, the effect that this war is going to have indeed is already having on world commodity prices like oil and wheat. You know, that's going to affect many, many, many different parts of the world. And so clearly that includes audiences in New Zealand. So, of course, that's going to 
affect everybody's standard of living right around the world. So it's going to have a real effect on people's day-to-day economies. And James, in Assignment Moscow, uh, in part of the book, you talk about, I think, the first Chechen war back in the mid-1990s for the BBC. The second one, I believe you were, you were there to witness part of that as well. But at that point, it seemed like the Russians were prepared to have you with them. But because of their lack of awareness of how the media worked, that was something you were actually able to see and report. And that didn't look good at all for the, the Russians. No, it didn't. And I think, you know, I think there's been a, a process over the last sort of 20 plus years by which the Russian authorities have sort of learned how to deal with the, the international media and they've engaged to various extents and disengaged uh, and encouraged and banned. And I think you, know, that you mentioned the first Chechen war. That was really in, in the book. I talk about, you know, interviewed a couple of other correspondents who, who covered that and both of them quite independently came up with the phrase um, free for all. And it was and as you travelled in from about 30, 40 kilometres away, we would pass the local militia, we would pass Russian front lines, and then we would meet Chechen fighters. So we would get all this amazing sort of different perspective. It was pretty dangerous. But the only real limit on your, your activity, on your travel, was where it sort of felt safe to go. Uh, there was absolutely, you know, there's a lot of coverage of civilian suffering, of civilian casualties. And also politically, this is quite hard to imagine in Russia now, but in the 1990s, after the end of of communism, there was also political will to have a free press. And there was a lot of very bold and brave Russian journalists who were doing very critical reporting of this ham-fisted and clumsy and murderous military campaign. And that, of course, is something which is entirely absent now. Go forward a few years to the second Chechen war in the late 1990s, early 2000s, and you saw much sort of stricter controls. A deliberate attempt to say, well, wait a minute, we, we gave free access to journalists, both Russian and international last time round. We got very poor coverage in consequence. Uh, and so we're going to do things differently this time. And it is, of course, no coincidence that by the time that second war began in the fall of 1999, when Vladimir Putin was prime minister of Russia and, and was very shortly to become president of Russia for the first time. And in the book, you also uh, reference in 2004 um, an event that possibly a lot of people here have forgotten about now, but the Beslan school siege, uh, school children and entire school, hundreds of people held hostage by armed rebels there. It was a very bloody end to that, clumsily handled by the Russian forces. And the whole thing went out live on television, went out live on the main channel on TV One News, which almost never happens for a news event. We don't have 24-hour channels, so remarkable stuff. And did that turn out to be quite a signal event where Putin realised the world was watching and started to put effort into a much more sophisticated way of controlling the image of Russia out to the world and even the image of himself? Yeah, I think so. I mean, that really was an absolute disaster. Terrible, terrible casualty figures. And uh, a failed attempt by the Russian security forces to end the siege, uh, which resulted actually in, in deaths of you know, huge numbers of people, which, as you say, was played out in front of the international media. But already then there were attempts to try to control who was getting there. Uh, Anna Politkovskaya, the very courageous Russian investigative journalist who was actually shot dead, murdered some years later, who was a great critic of the war in Chechnya. She actually tried to get on a flight to Beslan and she felt, and I actually met her some, some weeks afterwards, she was poisoned on that flight, she thinks. Uh, and that, that seems clearly an attempt to make sure that, you know, whoever was going to cover this and she wasn't going to be there because they knew how critical her reporting would be. And Mel, in uh, Assignment Moscow, in James' book, uh, there's a foreword by Martin Sixsmith, um, veteran journalist and correspondent. 
and now an author as well. Um, he, he said Western journalists have been the principal way that the West has learned about Russia all along, a place very few Westerners have actually gone to even now. Uh, but he said in the Stalin era, a lot of correspondents went there. They saw no bad in Russia. They wanted to believe in what was happening there. Now they see nothing good in Putin's Kremlin. Um, he even said uh, there, I think, the media have become useful idiots. Mel, do you get that sense that there is just an overwhelmingly negative impression of the country that, that in the end might not help us that much? In London, in our, you know, in our journalism department, we have Russian students and we have Ukrainian students. And I think our news coverage is being fairly open and understanding to the complexities faced by everyday Russians as they navigate the situation. So on the one hand, I agree, Putin is very much being framed and characterised as out of touch and increasingly an absolute villain on the international stage. At the same time, I hope um, we are seeing enough nuance in the coverage that that isn't characterising you know, Russian citizens and that we do see a lot of nuance there. We are seeing coverage of the dissidents as well and the people that are trying to take a stand. And Melanie, the first time we spoke to you was about five or six years ago now, and that was about your research into the media image of Africa and how reporting of, of crisis and conflict and corruption there over decades had left a, a kind of impression that was almost impossible to shift. I mean, it kind of drowned out reports of, of progress in recent times. It seemed to dominate people's impressions because of the way the media works. Do you fear this sort of thing could happen as well with Russia and Ukraine and is the way that people now tend to look at the former Yugoslavia and still think of it as some sort of battleground where, of course, a lot of times passed and things change? When you're only exposed to a single story of any place, that does start to dominate how you think about it. And perhaps counterintuitively, I think it's most likely to happen once the coverage dies down. Because right now, what we're seeing, especially at the very start of the invasion, was really in Europe, especially wall-to-wall coverage, be it the sports pages. Prince Harry's opening the Invictus Games, and he's talking about the Ukrainian team who are there, and we're seeing it in the cultural pages and the you know everywhere. So we're actually getting a pretty nuanced story. We're reading and hearing about the statues that are being destroyed and how you know tourism is being disrupted. So we're thinking of Ukraine in a very full rounded way in all of those different dimensions. But as I believe the news coverage will, you know, taper everywhere, we'll start to get probably just more low level updates about what's happening in the conflict. And if you aren't following it closely, that will become the only story that you hear about Ukraine, especially if you're a distant audience. There is certainly a good chance that that will come to dominate how people think about Ukraine for the medium term. And James, the need for nuanced coverage is something you wrote about in Assignment Moscow. Um, you said few countries have experienced as much change as Russia has in three decades, but yet few people have been there, seen it for themselves. And you say that the, the country and the people who are interested in it deserve much more nuanced coverage. Is, is there a sense that we know about the fall of the USSR in, uh, in the early 1990s and somehow it all fast forward to Putin and we don't we don't think about, for example, the, the chaos and the humiliation of the era when Yeltsin was in charge, which has made a whole generation of Russians, you know, bitter and disappointed maybe? Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that Bitterness and that disappointment is something that uh, Vladimir Putin understood very well, and he constructed his own entire political edifice around that, really. And I think now, what really strikes me, Colin, as someone who first went to the Soviet Union, as it still was, as a, as a language student in the late 1980s, and first went as a TV producer in the early 1990s, I wonder if my generation has witnessed the whole of three decades 
of Russia engaging and being open to the West in the ways that it has at various periods during its history. And I think that period is now over. You know, we're only six or seven weeks into this war so far, but I think it's quite difficult to overstate the significance of how this is going to change things. The Western journalism of Russia has had a disproportionate effect on forming people's opinions of that country because people don't know much about it. I mean, when I first went to university in the Cold War, it was very, very hard to go there. And it, now I think we're going to return to something like that. You know, however this is going to end, and I'm not somebody who thinks this is going to be over um, soon by any stretch of the imagination. Narratives, information, uh, the telling of news is such an important part of this conflict. We need to understand what's being said. And I fear that cultural ties are going, business ties are being significantly reduced. You know, there were times in the 2000s when... There was very poor diplomatic relations between uh, the UK and Russia. You know, a couple of kilometres from where we were sitting, big Western companies were opening big branches of their retail stores. So the economic relationship was still healthy. Now that has all but gone. You know, that, that hugely symbolic closing of McDonald's in Moscow a few weeks ago, you know, a real sign of Western culture, Western capitalism, Western business arriving in Russia. Now that process is being reversed. I'm talking to James Rogers and also to Melanie Bunce. Uh, they're from the City University of London's Journalism Department. Melanie is a New Zealander and is their Head of Department of Journalism, also a Professor of International Journalism there. And James is a reader in international journalism and a former foreign correspondent in Moscow, uh, the Middle East and elsewhere indeed. Uh, RNZ News audiences with uh, longer memories will recall that James was frequently uh, a guest on RNZ News programmes down the year. And he is also the author of the book Assignment Moscow, reporting on Russia from Lenin to Putin. James, we talked earlier about that Beslan School siege 2004, very bloody event, possibly the first one that brought uh, Russia under Putin to kind of international attention in a kind of live news sense. And uh, people saying this was a point at which he realised he had to maintain tighter control over political life and media coverage. Uh, in Assignment Moscow, there's fascinating chapters about the extent to which they attempted to use Western public relations. So, for example, when uh, Russia strikes out in Georgia, the two sides, Georgian and, and the Russian, are both hiring PR firms based in Brussels that I think were only literally a, f a few blocks apart, you know, in order to try and manage the message. Was this a completely new development of trying to influence the world like this? Yeah, I think it was. It was absolutely fascinating the sort of time and money they put into this. And I think, you know, Russia had hired Western PR agencies the first time a couple of years before in 2006. And by 2008, when Russia started its military campaign in Georgia, its war in Georgia in August of 2008, these companies have been working for, for them for a long time. But the Georgians had also, they had a very, very pro-Western government then. And we had this really odd spectacle of a president whose country was at war with a much more powerful and larger neighbour spending huge amounts of time uh, live on television. They'd obviously accepted they were not going to win the, the military battle. And so they really, really focused on winning the battle of world public opinion. But at the same time, the Russians were very keen to get their accounts out there. And I don't remember any other time when the Russian authorities were quite so eager to compete with Western journalists. And this was clearly, you know, the on the advice of their Western PR advisors. Um, the foreign minister then, Sergei Lavrov, then as now foreign minister. One thing about following Russian politics, Colin, is that the senior people don't tend to change that much. <laughs> Come so back again, yeah. Sort of, you know, yeah, you feel sort of, you know, quite well in touch with, with who's who's who still, even, you know, it's more than 10 years since I was last a correspondent in Moscow. But, you know, the top people haven't really changed. 
pretty much a little over 24 hours after the war had started, I was given a, a sit-down exclusive interview um, with uh, Sergei Lavrov. Uh, and other interviews were given just to other Western media, Sky and CNN, if my memory serves me correctly. Two things I remember about that day. Uh, one, I think Mr. Lavrov had been given some quite poor advice uh, by his PR people. The Westerners said, oh, it's a Saturday morning, you know, Western journalists will be pretty relaxed. I have been invited to the Russian Foreign Ministry, which is one of those big Stalin skyscrapers that people may recognise from pictures in Moscow. So, of course, you know, I didn't normally wear a suit when I was a correspondent, but for interviewing a senior <laughs> minister, I did. Turned up suit and tie, very neat. And Mr. Lavrov was there in a rather fetching lime green open neck shirt, which I think he'd sort of been told to. That was what Western journalists would expect to wear at the weekend. So <laughs> next time I saw him, he was very much in a suit and he wasn't. I think it was probably somebody got told off for that. The other thing, though, which so I really... Next time around, you turned up in a disco shirt. <laughs> next time I stuck to the suit I think I think I, I, I still felt I called the dress code right um but also on that day um you know we got these interviews and later that morning I got back to the BBC's office in Moscow um, we got a phone call from Russia Today saying can we use some of your interview but you know thinking back now it is quite unimaginable to think that you know the Russian foreign minister would talk to a western media outlet before their own tame ones if you like before RT and now of course you know it would be western media outlet begging possibly for a clip from what Lavrov had told RT but it was just clearly their PR advisors had said to them look go for CNN go for the BBC go for Sky News um, but you know RT is just a sort of fledgling thing and since then it's grown into this you know this thing that we're supposed to be so afraid of so much that it needs to be banned in time of war. RT was also taken off the pay TV platform uh, that's in about 40% of households here. Uh, they quietly took it down and explained, look, it's just a temporary move while we work out what's what because it was happening in other countries. Hasn't come back. And, yeah, Mel, I wonder how you feel about that because, you know, I see little morselized clips uh, on social media platforms of pro-Putin channels where, you know, interestingly, one person will pop up in a panel discussion and, advance that you know perhaps this this wouldn't be uh, something that will be over in a hurry or something like that and that mere mention of something that's uh, off message is somehow revealing if we can't understand the nuance and the source of this stuff is it just really confusing for um, people in, in countries like New Zealand to be seeing little bits and pieces and relying on people's interpretations who we don't know yeah I think there's lots and lots of uh, information flows around social media and people are calling this the first TikTok war you know, there are a billion people on TikTok right now, and they are primarily getting information about this through completely decontextualized video clips that, you know, the provenance of which you have no idea and design features of that platform make it particularly hard to contextualize. It's therefore really crucial and important that we have news sources that we rely on and we trust, right? Organizations like the BBC, who are actually doing a, a fantastic job, I think, of journalism that is trying to put these snippets into context and tell us where the information is coming from and probe those sources. So as a non-expert in the region completely, I tend to fall back on who I think of as trusted sources, who I see working for news organisations where I know, you know, if they were fabricating something, they would lose their job. That is my kind of um, very basic measure for working out a trustworthy source. Would, would this person lose their job if they were lying? One of the narratives I increasingly hear from people I work with in the humanitarian um, field is actually almost jealousy at how good the coverage of Ukraine has been because they've maybe been working on crises and conflicts 
um, Yemen or the Democratic Republic of Congo, or even Af Afghanistan, just none of these are getting anything like the kind of um, nuanced coverage we're getting of Ukraine's. Mm, and the, I mean, I worked at BBC in London and, and News 25 years ago, and back then, the likes of Olegera and Lise Doucette, Jeremy Bowen, Paul Adams, <laughs> um, these people were reporting on events then um, as younger journalists, but they're still doing it now, yeah. you know, and it seems rude to call them veterans. Yeah. But, I mean, that's the point, right? They've got 25 years more experience, and uh, they are a real resource. But, Mel, I, I, if I go back about five years, I recall, you know, there'd been the Brexit process and a lot of concern about misinformation and fake news and so on there. There were things like first draft uh, set up, you know, recognising that morselised bits of information that were false could travel and be influential, you know, so fast on social media. They were trying to set up fast twitch kind of verification and debunking. Is that sort of thing still happening now? Because we're seeing, you know, a huge volume of contestable stuff coming out relating to this Ukraine conflict. Yeah, I think the tools and skills of fact checkers, if anything, has really increased. We're seeing pretty amazing work done by organizations like Bellingcat that are doing live open source investigations, pulling on the kind of work and time of thousands of volunteers around the world who are looking at satellite images and all sorts of really kind of trying to almost document uh, war crimes, alleged war crimes in real time. But also, as you say, specialist organizations set up to fact check. However, of course, the stream of mis- and disinformation is also larger than ever before, as these organisations can't really grapple with the scale of that. But what they can do is pick off the more concerning claims or lies. But that doesn't mean that the average person going onto a platform is somehow going to be protected from seeing things that aren't true. And James, that post-Soviet media that became free and, and blossomed, can it survive both this conflict and if Putin stays in power for a number of years? Yes, very definitely. And, but I think the, the short term uh, is very, very difficult. But I mean, I think right throughout Russian history, I mean, there's been this idea that journalists are, are writers, if you like. I mean, it's interesting if you talk to, you know, if we, well, let's to give one big example, Svetlana Alexeyevich, whose uh, work on particularly on Chernobyl and on the Soviet campaign in Afghanistan actually won her the Nobel Prize for Literature a few years ago. You know, she's very much in this sort of tradition where Russians, the long periods of their history have never really had free expression, have had limited political freedoms in, in, you know, under the czars, under the Communist Party. But they have looked to their writers and therefore to their journalists to sort of express these opinions of society. And there are some excellent journalists in Russia doing some very, very, very courageous work. But I think it's incredibly hard now. You know, the last really two principal independent broadcast outlets have both been casualties of this war because it is, you know, the new restrictive laws which uh, the Russian government have brought in have to all intents and purposes made independent journalism there extremely difficult. International organisations also decided that they're no longer able to operate there, at least for now. But we have been there before. Similar situation in the early years of Soviet Russia, dis dismayed and, and annoyed by the way that Western uh, media organisations had reported uh, the Russian civil war in which they had eventually prevailed. The Bolshevik authorities pretty much banned them. And so we had a situation where there was almost no international representation in Russia. And who knows, maybe we're going to go back to that. But for the time being, you know, both Russian and international journalists are, are trying their very best to work in what are incredibly difficult circumstances. In Ukraine as well, the media is going to have to survive this. They had to build up their own uh, media system and now have to protect it 
There was a journalism conference, an international one held in Perugia in Italy recently. They made that a focus, creditably. Uh, Kiev Independence Chief Executive Darina Shevchenko said at one point, we weren't granted a free country, we fought for this free country tooth and nail. And when she was asked, how can journalists help Ukrainian colleagues? You know, she said simply, keep talking about the war here, because as soon as you go silent, the situation will get worse. I was um, actually at that um, festival and delightful festival in Perugia last week. Oh, you were there? And I, I, yeah, I was. And I can um, absolutely confirm that uh, Ukraine and reporting on Ukraine was an absolute high-profile issue that people were very invested in and, and concerned about. There's slightly less quantity of coverage in the news now than there was at the very start, understandably, but it's still front page. There is, of course, a risk if it continues that it will taper in the news attention. But, I mean, it's just such a important issue for Europe as James was saying earlier in the interview I mean that um, even if people are just thinking about their own self-interest and how this affects their own personal lives that will be newsworthy for some time to come I really encourage everyone to support the journalists if they can um, that they they see doing this great work and finally uh, James I have a bit of a memory as a kid my grandparents lived in the UK and used to send us giant rolls of weekend UK newspapers, which had the sort of colour supplement magazines wound into them. And we used to all read those. They were months and months old by the, the time they got to us. One of them had Martin Sixsmith, uh, who wrote the foreword for your book, uh, in the back of a, a larder or something, smuggling himself into the Soviet Union to take photographs and write about life behind the Iron Curtain. I mean, that would have been probably way before you even went there as a, as a language student yourself. Um, now, you're a Russian speaker. You know your way around. Um, if it does get um, difficult to get into Russia, is that the sort of thing you might consider, um, crawling into a car boot and trying to get him behind there to report on a, a Russia that, that might end up being a bit more distant to us if things go on as they are now? I did smuggle myself into Chechnya in the back of the truck one of the times I got caught and told off by a very red-faced colonel who said, "You, I'm going to ring Moscow and you're never going to work in the Soviet Union again. And it was 1995. I thought it would have been impolite to point out that that was technically impossible. <laughs> I didn't think it was going to go down very well, so I kept my counsel on that one. <laughs> Probably wise. I have, I mean, I had the pleasure of being detained by the Russian security forces on more than one occasion, but never, I'm pleased to say, for more than a few hours at a time. And that was a time when, you know, there were good sort of diplomatic relations, reasonably speaking, but I'm not sure how sort of good the environment is going to be. The days of, of travelling freely around the country, they're over for now, certainly. Even if you are, in theory, able to take a flight to, you know, a far-flung corner of Russia to see what people there think of what's going on, you can be pretty sure you can be followed. But I think, you know, we can also see that journalist resourcefulness will make sure that there'll be, there's a, the will will definitely be there to try to tell a story of what's going on inside Russia. That was James Rogers, a former correspondent in Moscow and the author of the book Assignment Moscow, reporting on Russia from Lenin to Putin. He's also a reader in international journalism at City University in London, where New Zealander Melanie Bunce is the head of the journalism department and its professor of international journalism. Well, that's all we have for you on the media this weekend. We'll be back again with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show. And then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.